Well, good morning, Fellowship Church, and welcome to worship this morning. We're glad to gather with you, whether you're here with us in person or whether you're joining us from afar via technology, whether you've entered this space with light and happy hearts or whether you've entered this space uh, with heavy burdens and shifting the suitcase of life from one hand to the other. We gather this morning for worship. And I offer these words to you, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. I want to invite you this morning to enter into an ancient mindset, a way of viewing the world in which this whole world is God's pasture and we God's sheep and God the Good Shepherd. Our scriptures tell us in the most famous of Psalms, Psalm 23 that the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil For you, O God, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus, God's son, eventually took up this same imagery in the New Testament. And in John chapter 10, he says, I am the gate and all who enter through me will be saved. They will go in and go out and find pasture. And then he says that the thief, which represents all the other shepherds in this world that are not God Almighty, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy But I have come, said Jesus, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. And so we gather this morning to worship God, our great shepherd, the king of love. I invite you to stand and let's sing together. Shepherd is the king of love, my shepherd. 
join me in this responsive prayer of the people. God the Father, your will for all people is health and salvation. We praise and thank you, O Lord. God the Son, you came that we might have life and have it abundantly. We praise and thank you, O Lord. God the Holy Spirit, you made our bodies the temple of your presence. We praise and thank you, O Lord. Holy Trinity, one God, in you we live, move, and have our being. We praise you and thank you. Lord, grant your healing grace to all who are sick or injured, that they may be made whole. Hear us, O Lord of life. Grant to all who seek your guidance and to all who are lonely, anxious, despondent, and knowledge of your will and an awareness of your presence. 
Hear us, O Lord. Mend broken relationships and restore those in emotional distress to soundness of mind and serenity of spirit. Hear us, O Lord. Bless physicians, nurses, and all others who minister to the suffering, granting them wisdom, skill, sympathy, and patience. Hear us, O Lord of life. Grant to the dying peace and a holy death, and uphold by the grace and consolation of your Holy Spirit those who are bereaved. Hear us, O Lord of life. Restore to wholeness whatever is broken by human sin, in our lives, in our nation, and in the world. Hear us, O Lord of life. You are the Lord who does wonders. You have declared your power among the peoples. With you, O Lord, is the well of life. Hear us, O Lord of life. Heal us and make us whole. O Lord, as we go forth into this a new week. Let us go with the knowledge that in whatever situation we face as your people, we may go running into your arms. We ask this all in your name. Amen. As we continue in worship, I invite you to join us in the next song, singing that we can bring everything to God in prayer.
fellowship, our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. One of the ways that we've been uh, following Jesus as a uh, community in our formation has been through the summer worship series um, that we're going through right now called Reconnecting and Rising Strong. Through scripture passages, through the companion book we've been reading, um, through songs and liturgy and prayers, uh, we've really just been focused in on what it means to be a community that reconnects and rises strong. And so it feels appropriate that our congregation, you the congregation, have been contributing to Word of the Week each week as you're listening in the service to all of the elements and especially the sermon, um, we've given you the opportunity to submit a word that maybe you would use to sum up that, that theme of the week. And then we've been uh, taking those uh, votes, uh, tallying them, and then there's a winner. You get a $5 gift card to Captain Sunday, is it? Yeah. So, and then we've been putting it out on the um, uh, gallery wall out there. So I was gone last week, but um, I see that the word is shrimp. And... I don't know why they picked me, the shortest staff member, to announce that. <laughs> and maybe those of you who were here this last week can help explain it to those of us who weren't what shrimp has to do with Jonah. So we're going to move on from that, but just a little shout out to, we had three, no, three people submit shrimp. <laughs> three. <laughs> And one of them was uh, Vivian Heisman. It's been our youngest winner so far. So, yes, they each got a $5 gift card. So today, as you're listening, uh, you may, maybe will hear something more profound than shrimp when Pastor Nate is preaching. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, but please do submit your word of the week. You can do it by writing. I think there's some uh, notepads back there, and you can write and put it in the offering plate. You can submit it online. You can text us. You can just tell one of us, and we'll write it down in the chat online. You can enter your word uh, maybe during the sermon as you're thinking of it. And we'll have access to all of those things. So keep doing that. Um, one of the other ways that um, we've been uh, really living into our mission this last week of Belong, Grow, and Serve has been through our students. Um, the high school students just came back last weekend from their uh, weekend retreat. The middle school students had Summer Olympics on Wednesday night. And I think we have a picture of that one, yeah, on the beach. Um, and then uh, we had our children's ministry and youth ministry partner up on Friday to pick blueberries and they actually turned these blueberries into blueberry muffins, which I believe are out at the coffee bar. So they kind of did a belong, grow, serve all at once. So they're serving us this morning with blueberry muffins. So make sure you get some of those. Um, and then just one more note we wanted to say is that the flowers here in front of the pulpit um, were from June Rymink's memorial service yesterday. And for those of you who don't know, she was a real pillar in our community, one of the charter members, uh, the reason that we have the bell out front um, and the gladiolas have to do with the fact that it was her family's um, gladiola farm that we have our property here built on. So um, as you wander around the building on this level, there is a picture of gladiolas. And um, if you find it, you know, a little bonus for you there. <laughs> it's one of my favorite paintings that we have. But just wanted to um, honor and remember the Rhymings um, that she passed away a year ago. Um, as we continue in our time of worship together, I invite our kids who are ages three through seven, you can leave at this moment during our next song, and I would invite you to stand, and let's use this next prayer um, as we sing this song together as our prayer for the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts. Speak, O oh Lord, as we come to you, 
things I always have liked about Fellowship Church is that, you know, we're, uh, you know, like willing to try things, that you can be yourself, and that, you know, our expectations are not way up here, but, you know, they're, they're moderate, reasonable, you know, that most people can, can achieve. And, and one of the things that I really appreciate about this morning is that the expectations that are normally here are even lower, because the most profound thing I have to beat this week is shrimp. Is that what you're saying, Jess? Right on. Well, let's pray uh, and pray that God might be doing something even more profound uh, this morning. God, we thank you uh, that you are present here with us. No matter what we carry into this place, no matter what's going on in the rest of our lives, you see that and you know that, and you can help us hold that as we uh, prepare and listen to your word for us this morning. May that be so by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have you guys heard what's happening this week at one of the uh, country's largest mega churches in the Washington, D.C. area? The name of the church is McLean Bible Church, and, you know, pastors kind of hear about this thing maybe first, but their pastor, David Platt, is only the second pastor ever at this church. He's been there for about three years. He's a best-selling author. He wrote this book called Radical. People love it. Uh, He's Tons of people come to their church every single Sunday. But McLean Bible Church has recently become kind of this epicenter of controversy. The, the, the news made Christianity today, and it's even spilled into some of our nation, nationwide news headlines. David's radical a call for radicalness is really embodied by him. In July of 2019, uh, his church, uh, surprisingly unannounced, uh, was visited by then-President Donald Trump. And so he said, hey, President Trump, you come up here. And he put his hand on him and he prayed for President Trump that every grace would be upon him as he led our country. One year later, uh, this radical spirit, you might say, uh, spurred him uh, to go alongside of his pastoral colleague, Mike Kelsey, an African-American, in marching with the evangelicals in D.C. for justice after the killing of George Floyd. Later in 2020, David wrote a book entitled Before You Vote, which stirred up all kinds of other controversies. 
these instances, along with the regular treatment of preaching in front of people every single week, uh, has created some in the congregation to write a little bit of a false narrative about who he is. Stories, you could say, that characterize David Platt as a radical leftist trying to hijack the church with CRT and liberalism. These story writers, you might even call them conspiracy theorists, formed a sanction within their congregation that coalesced on social media under the, under the name Save McLean Bible Church. They campaigned together, and they are doing everything they can to stop any part of this pastor's agenda, including the ordination or the appointment, you might say, of three new elders. At the end of June, their church, like ours, had a congregational meeting where they were going to vote for these three new elders. And their constitution said that they needed 75% of the the congregation to vote in favor of these people to become elders. Well, the vote was so close, and they didn't know what to do with the proxy votes, that they, they couldn't deem them... Uh, winners, if you not winners is the wrong word, but appointed or, or ordained. So they held, had a revote last Sunday after three weeks. Each of the, the elders was voted in uh, at 78%. Now, this group called Save McLean Bible Church has formed lawsuits against the church and the pastor. This is where the news comes in, and they are uh, trying to sabotage the ministry of McLean Bible Church. And the headlines are all over the place on social media and on Christianity today. Why? Because I'm not trying to say this is right or wrong. I'm just saying that why? Because some people wrote a story about who David Platt is, and they took that story to the farthest degree, you might say, in an effort to take him out of leadership. To be honest, this made my heart super heavy this week as I was preparing for our message. Are lawsuits really the best way for you, for a church, to handle difficult things? How do these headlines hamper our witness as a Christian community living in our country today? And it's left me wondering, is this what Jesus had in mind for how we resolve conflict and live in unity with one another? But most of all, I'm kind of sad because people are unfairly writing stories about this David Platt pastor. But then again, that's kind of what we do as humans, isn't it? We write stories about people based on something they do or something they say in order to make sense of who they are and make sense of their actions. And then sometimes we have this tendency to judge them as either good or bad. We do it, don't we? I mean, you can create a narrative about someone based on a bumper sticker they have or the yard sign they put in their yard or even a post that they put on social media. Storying, we might call it. Making meaning of something we experience is what we do. It's what humans do. It's actually biological. Human beings are hardwired to write stories, to make sense of the world in the form of a narrative. There's all kinds of research that's been done, especially in the last 20 years, to explain why. And and it's one of the distinguishing features between humans and the rest of the animal kingdom, you might say. We're creative, we're innovative, we write stories, we make sense of the world. 
One neurologist, Robert Burton, points out that when we write stories, when we make sense of a situation with a narrative, it actually completes a pattern in our brain. All these disconnected things become more connected. It's like when we connect the dots, our brains release dopamine and we get this little charge like, oh, aha, I got it. I figured it out because I wrote a story. Our blood starts to flow a little faster. We experience some pleasure when we clear the ambiguity in our brains. We write a story. What's most interesting about this, though, and what's most interesting about his research is that when we clear our brains with a story, he found out that that dopamine hit, you might say, happens whether the story is true or whether the story is false. It doesn't matter if it's true or false. If we write the story, we experience that moment of aha. For example, hypothetically, let's say you were going to go and meet someone for coffee at 10 a.m. at Lamangelo's, and you get there at 9.55 in the morning, and you're ready for your meeting at 10 a.m. This is kind of a business meeting in which you're going to talk to somebody about something important. And it becomes 10.05, and your patience begins to run a little bit thin. And then it gets to be 10.10, and you're starting to get a little frustrated, like, hey, where are you? And maybe you even feel a little bit angry. You're confused about why this person's not there, and you start to think, what's going on? Your brain actually begins to write a story, right? Well, maybe this person forgot to come. Maybe it's because they didn't write it in their calendar or make a note of this. You know, come to think of it, if they didn't write it in their calendar and they forgot, maybe they don't really care about me. Maybe they don't even like me anymore. Actually, they're probably with somebody else that they think is even more important than I am. And this story that you're writing begins to make sense. You, You begin to feel some of that aha because you're making sense of why this person is late. And then at 10.15, they finally show up, and they tell you what really happened. The person's a parent, and their daycare kind of fell through that day, and they were kind of rushing to get them and the kid to your appointment, and they were going to try to work it out. Uh, And right before they left, the the kid uh, filled his diaper, and uh, they had to change the diaper. And then they, after changing the diaper, they were in such a hustle and bustle to get to the coffee shop that they they forgot the book that they were going to bring to to hand to you. And so they turned around and went and got the book, and so they were 15 minutes late. No big deal. Ah, that makes sense. What Burton would say is that both of those stories, the factual one with the baby and the diaper and all the things, and the negative one that you wrote about yourself and about them, actually gave you that same kind of aha moment, that little dopamine charge. What I'd like to talk about this morning is those untrue stories that we so often tell of ourselves and of others. Brene Brene Brown, in her book, Rising Strong, that we've been kind of following along with this summer, calls these untrue negative stories we tell about other people and ourselves confabulations. Confabulations is actually a social work term that's used when uh, they're working with patients uh, that have dementia. But confabulations are what we all do when we have limited data and we don't know uh, what is exactly true. We write a story, a confabulation. And our brains actually have the capacity to 
combine what we know to be true, a little bit of what we know to be true, and some of our own common sense, and then we mix it with manufactured data that our brain makes up about, you know, where this person is, and it becomes a confabulation. And I'd like to contend this morning that confabulations bring tremendous harm to ourselves and to other people. And confabulations are actually at the very center of our text that we're going to read from this morning. They might not be really obvious in the first reading or blatant to you, but I'd like to ask you to listen very carefully to our text this morning, Jeopardy style, because I think it's actually Jesus' question that reveals the confabulations that are being written. Listen to the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. At that very time, there were some present who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Jesus asked them, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all will perish just as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when, when the tower uh, of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you too will perish just as they did. This is the word of the Lord. Did you hear the question Jesus asked that revealed the confabulation that the people were telling? Do you think that these people were worse sinners or offenders than everyone else? What do you think the confabulation they were writing was? Before we get to it, let's unpack the passage a little bit. We have two situations that at first glance make little sense to our modern minds. They were so contextual to the day that they happened. They're historic events, events that are recorded in the scriptures but also in history that would have popped up on their news feeds on their cell phones had they had them back then. These were headlines from the first century. The first was that Pilate, the Roman governor of their area, had some, was somehow mixing blood a.k.a. killing multiple innocent people in Galilee for no reason and then corrupting their religious ceremony of sacrifices with the blood of the deceased. The second is about a crazy situation where a tower randomly fell, a headline a little too close for our newsreels, that ended up killing 18 different people in Jerusalem. Two tragedies that left the people asking, Why? Why do bad things like this happen to innocent people? We have some of those kind of headlines in our news reels today, don't we? Fires that are destroying homes and miles of nature and wildlife. Falling buildings. The assassinations of foreign leaders. Mass murders, again, this, this week in the Chicagoland area. Tragedies. Not just ones that are in our news lines, but also that are in our very own lives. That leave us asking, why? Why? Why did this happen this way? And what do humans do when we have, are left asking why? We write stories. 
We try to make sense of the unexplainable, of the ambiguity that's in our mind. We take the limited data that we have with a little bit of common sense and, and then the manufactured data that we make in our minds, and we create confabulations. Stories that give us that little dopamine shot because they make the unexplainable a little bit more palatable. Jesus asked, do you really think that these people were worse sinners than all everyone else? Which is to say the people were confabulating that these people suffered from these tragedies because they were sinners. In a way, they deserved their fate for being worse sinners than they were. What's Jesus' response to this? No, I tell you. Another translation says, by no means repent or you too will perish. Which is a little bit short, maybe abrupt, and even a bit cold at first glance. Not maybe what we'd expect from Jesus. But then again, I think it's uh, it's concise and clear. Not only in what Jesus says, but in what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't try to explain why these tragedies happen. Jesus doesn't even uh, empathize at all with the confabulation that these people somehow deserved it. Instead, Jesus emphatically rejects their untrue stories. By no means. These are confabulations. He invites them to allow these tragedies to somehow form uh, their life. But he says, repent which in the Greek is literally turn, turn from your confabulations, turn from these untrue stories, and look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Because these confabulations will do harm to you and to those around you. Which begs the question for us today, I think. What confabulations are you telling yourself that you need to turn from? This week, as I've been ruminating a little bit about confabulations and noticing how often I write confabulations and even hearing some confabulations from those around me, I think most of our confabulations break into two different categories. One is a harsh judgment, a confabulation of judgment about someone else, and the other is a confabulation of judgment about oneself. First are confabulations of judgment about others which are so, so easy to write, aren't they? One comes to mind for me this summer. I was uh, given the opportunity uh, in May, let's say, to become one of the assistant coaches in my son's Little League baseball team. You see, two of the coaches, that the head coach and the assistant coach, both contracted COVID, and so our team was on quarantine for two weeks. One of the coaches actually ended up staying in the hospital for a little while, which is why I stepped in which also meant that our first three or four games were postponed because we, our team was also in quarantine. So we came to the first game of the season, and we, uh, playing our first game, were playing against a team that had you know, three or four other games under their belt. And the discrepancy was blatantly obvious, you might say. We were striking out while the other team is hitting the ball and stealing the bases and scoring all kinds of runs. It was the fourth inning out of five innings, and our team was down 14 to nothing already. We had a kid on first base, and one of our best hitters comes up to bat and cranks one to the outfield, which is pretty unusual in Little League. 
And so uh, the first, the guy in first starts running to second, and I'm on the th- I'm the third base coach. And if you've ever played softball with Nate, uh, there's only one sign as a third base coach, and that's go, go, go. So he's coming around second, and I'm go, 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 go. He makes it all the way home, and the crowd's going. Our parents are cheering, "Yeah, we did it!" And our kids are, "We got to run! It's fourteen to one." Meanwhile, a coach on the other side goes ballistic, part of my confabulation for him, saying, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can only take two bases when the ball is in the infield, referring to some little league rule. I'm like, what in the world? And Nate is a little competitive, got a little bit emotionally into the game, you know. And so I might have let a little something slip or just tried to inform him gently with a loud voice. I'm just doing what your team is doing, stealing the bases. You can't do that. Fine, we'll put our player on third and we'll score the next one. We're going to be a bigger team, guys, all right? The score run comes off the scoreboard. It's 14 to 0 again, and we have a guy on third. We ended up not scoring. But the confabulation that I wrote about this dad was that he was an egomaniac. He was a win-at-all-cost-it kind of guy. I think that he probably had a hurt in his childhood where his Little League team didn't score a run. And so he's just going to pile it on. I hope he feels better after winning 14 to 0 instead of 14 to 1. I mean, his 8-year-old pitcher now has a 0.0 ERA. <laughs> I confabulated enough to judge this person as not only a bad coach, but a bad dad and a bad human being. He deserved to be punished. But in the moment what I didn't realize or what I didn't think about was I, and I refused to consider, was that he might be carrying a story into that game that I had no idea about. I kind of forgot that he was a dad trying to do his best, just like I was a dad trying to do my best for my son and my team. I ignored the fact that we probably did break the rule. He was right. And we didn't deserve to score a run. We have such a tendency to write a confabulation about someone based on an experience we have that judges them as good or bad. Why is confabulating so bad for others and for ourselves? Because when we write a judgment story about someone else, we take away their humanity. We write a story, we, we ignore the fact that they have a story that brought them into that moment that we are experiencing with them. And we deny that they, too, were created by a loving God with unique gifts for this world. And that we are called to treat them as such. Regretfully, sometimes we not only confabulate those kind of judgments about others, but we confabulate the same judgments about ourselves. Sometimes we confabulate stories that I'm not lovable because of something I've done or something I've left undone. We confabulate stories that my worth in life is tied to my success or how I perform in front of others. We confabulate stories because we are consumers of social media of happiness based on what other people do and experience on social media. We conf- confabulations are dangerous because left unchecked or untamed, 
they lead to the judgment of others, and they lead to the judgment of our very own self. And we forget who we are and to whose we are. Brene Brown, in her book, uh, invites us to write down our confabulations. Write down the whole story. Tell the story to someone. And then ask yourself three questions. What do I need to learn and understand about the situation that I experienced? What do I need to learn and understand about the other people in this story? And what do I need to learn and understand about myself in the confabulations that I write? I think these are good questions that help us wrestle with what's motivating us to write these stories of others and ourselves. But I think she misses out on another opportunity and something that we can claim this morning is a part of the reconnecting and rising strong process. We can compare the lies of our confabulations with the truth we know from the word. The truth that we claim every time when we are baptized or when we baptize someone else. That there is a God who created us. That there is a God who loves us. There is a God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth for you and for me. That it is in his life, in his death, in his resurrection that we are called children of God. Christ is the one who the author of Hebrews says is the author and perfecter of your faith, the writer of your story. And this Christ can take any of our confabulations about other people and uh, ourselves and rewrite them in the light of his grace. There is no mistake, no lie, no judgment, no confabulation too big that can't be rewritten and edited by the one we call Christ. McLean Bible Church, I think, serves as a warning against the power of confabulations in a local congregation. In response to this faction that was formed, Pastor David Platt said, I know it's so ugly and painful to hear, but what I want to point out that this approach being used, the writing of confabulations against me and others, by the people giving leadership to this Save McLean Bible Church group in these meetings are unquestionably untrue and in many ways cases completely unreasonable. Likewise, when Jesus is confronted with the confabulations of the people that, there, that it was their sin that caused them to experience tragedy, he said, no, by no means. Repent. Turn from these confabulations, turn from these untrue stories, turn from these lies, and fix your eyes, fix your hearts on the author and perfecter of your faith. May it be so for them, may it be so for us today. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Friends, as we respond this morning, I can't think of another way to do that but to turn towards Jesus, as Pastor Nate just mentioned. So we will do that in this final song. Would you stand and let's sing together?
the invitation is to repent, to turn from the confabulations we write of others and of ourselves and run to the arms of Jesus. And as you go, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. And all God's people said, 
Amen. Go in peace.